Today, as Alex read, we're going to be in Revelation 2, and we're going to be looking at our fourth church, Thyatira. Thyatira is the fourth church to whom John is told to write, and the church in Thyatira is unique in that it's worldly insignificant compared to, world, from a worldly perspective, it's very insignificant compared to the other churches. The city was a military outpost that was about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos, and perhaps the city was best known for its production of purple dye. In Acts 16.14, we see that Lydia, who Paul led to Christ at Philippi, was from Thyatira, and she was identified as a seller of purple. We see, in a unique, we see that uh, Acts 16 tells us that God opened her heart and allowed the words of Paul to enter in. And history tells us that from that conversion experience, she went on to play a significant role in evangelizing the people of Thyatira. Like many small towns, Thyatira was known for this specific thing. They created purple dye. And, uh, they were, but they were known for humble things. This is a humble thing to be known for. And by and large, they were considered insignificant. Yet, this is the longest of the seven letters written to the churches. And it's written to the least known, least important, smallest, and least impressive of the cities and churches. When we consider this, we are reminded that Christ cares not whether we have 10 people or 10,000 people. His expectation for his bride and the weight that he places on on such is the same. Compromise in either situation, 10 or 10,000, is worthy of his rebuke And by grace, he offers it to us today lovingly through his word. He desires that his churches honor him and hold him in high regard. Not only he in high regard, but the task to which we have been called. The summary of our text today is that the church that tolerates false teaching and corrupt morality will receive judgment, while those who hold fast to the true gospel will receive the ultimate reward. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for these people and for all these people. God, thank you um, that, uh, that you've made us a family. Lord, thank you uh, that uh, for each child that is here, that is part of our family. Uh, God, might the next few weeks just remind us of, uh, of the incredible responsibility you've given us to help point them to you. Um, and not just those who share our last name, But all of the children in this church, you have given us the task of raising up the next generation of your church. Lord, that is a a heavy, humbling call. I ask that, uh, that you might do your work in us today, that we might be better equipped to raise up such a people. I I ask, Lord, that the legacy of us might last longer than, than we do. God, would you do your work in our hearts today? I ask these things in your good name. Amen. So what we see from the outset of this letter, Revelation 2 verse 18 says this, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like furnished bronze. We see that Christ's judgment is decisive and that he judges from a position of authority. He introduces himself the words of the son of God. I want you to note something in case you haven't noticed in the letters thus far. In Revelation 1, we see this descriptive picture 
of the glorified Christ. We see that he holds the lampstands in his right hand. He has eyes like fire, feet like bronze. And then in each of the letters to the churches, he introduces himself with one of those aspects of who he is. And so when you look at the whole, all the letters, you see this complete picture, but it takes all of them. The church of Jesus is, has always been a diverse group of people from di- diverse places, diverse cities, different, you know, people have different political leanings, they come from different backgrounds, they come from different cultures. It's always been a diverse group of people, but with one common identity, and that be Christ himself. And the, he, he remind, by, by sharing this piece with each church, he is reminding each church, because these are seven very different cities, seven churches with very different strengths, very different problems, but all of them, their identity is in him. And the term son of God is unique to Revelation. In the midst of a community where Apollo was worshipped as the son of Zeus, Christ is identified as the son of the one true God, not a puny idol. And he judges not only from a position of authority, but he judges from a position of power. Jesus displays his power. He is unparalleled in power and majesty. His strength is described in the best words that could be offered. Bronze was the strongest thing anybody would be familiar with. The blacksmith would recognize this as being the strongest symbol they could come up with in their head. And he's fully prepared to step over those who would stand against him. The powerful, majestic, holy Christ is also gracious. As with the other churches, he begins by graciously praising the church for what it has done well. In verse 19, we see that Christ commends the church for their faithful works. It says this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Note here that Jesus does not see faithfulness as insignificant. In this small community, he is aware of their good deeds and they bring glory to him. Even in the midst of their smallness, their faithfulness, their efforts, what they put forth at the feet of Jesus is significant and he cares and is aware. Our God cares and pays attention. And so thus for us, like Thyatira, let us rejoice in doing good works for Jesus. There are several things we could seek to emulate about Thyatira. That being primarily that they're known for their love and faithfulness. They loved Jesus. This term love, agape, is this significant thing. They, they did love Jesus, and it's that love for Jesus that led them to be faithful. They continued to endure and move forward doing what they believed God had called them to. The church was led to action, and they endured because of this love they had for Jesus. Unlike the church in Ephesus, their love for Christ had not grown cold. And we see this both in their service and endurance, that they were commended for their service. Their love led them to serve. Because of Christ's love for them, they were motivated to show the same kind of love to one another and to others. And they endured. They gave themselves to the work of Jesus. They abandoned their own interests and endured in the toil of Christ-like deeds. Like Thyatira, we too should desire to grow in good works for Jesus. Jesus commends them. He said an interesting thing in this verse. He says that their last works are greater than your first. They weren't satisfied. They desired to keep growing. 
And like a fine wine, this church's works became sweeter as time went on. And with that encouragement, let us grow. Let us desire to grow as a family. Like Thyatira, might our love for Jesus continue to lead us to love one another? That God has made us family. We can be who we are. We can be real about our doubts, our struggles, our sin, constantly pointing one another to Jesus because we're family. This isn't just a place we attend, but a people we belong to because we ultimately are united in belonging to Jesus. And we're a family of missionaries. Like Thyatira, might this love boil over out of our body into service into the community? Might we be known for such things? But while those two are important, we also believe we're called to be a family of missionary disciples. That in this day and age, I feel like, especially as, as pe- among people my age, I'm a, I, would, I think I'm considered like an elderly millennial, but still a millennial nonetheless. Family and missionary are very attractive. We want to be a part of something. I mean, we want to be a part of a family. And we, want to, we, we see the things happening in, in culture and in society. And we want to be engaged. And we want justice to go forth. And we want to fix what's broken. But we don't typically want to be disciples. We just want those other things. And if you miss discipleship, then those two things become deadly weapons, not God-glorifying honors. We are a family of missionary disciples. And while the first two are significant, Thyatira lacked in this third. For this reason, Christ condemns them for their excessive tolerance. In verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. William Hendrickson in his commentary says, Thyatira was indeed a lampstand, a light bearer, but this does not constitute an excuse for failure to exercise discipline with respect to members who make a compromise with the world. It's important to understand the expectation of Christ for his church. He does not expect his church to be perfect. In fact, he knew from the beginning that we would not be, and he gave his life because he knows we'll fall short. The good news of the gospel is that Christ's perfection is now ours. However, while he doesn't expect us to be perfect, he expects our constant response to the gospel to be humility and repentance. That the gospel, like Paul describes the gospel as bearing fruit and growing. The gospel's not a door that we enter into and then it's gone. No, it's something that's permeating us and building us up in Christ-likeness all the days of our life. It's bearing fruit and growing in us. We are a community of sinners. Hypocrites? You bet, sometimes. However, we are repentant sinners continually acknowledge and repent, acknowledging and repenting of sin, then for this to happen, we must be, we must always be a church that calls sin what it is and draws those lines accordingly. And Thyatira, out of a reluctance to hurt anybody's feelings, out of a desire for unity, they didn't do this and they wouldn't. Jesus in this verse gives us four areas of danger that we have to guard against. Four areas that we must be willing to recognize, address, and repent of because to delay means death. 
It means the, either one, we go our own way and lead many apart from Jesus, or best case scenario, for those who don't follow him, he removes your lampstand. Either are terrible choices. Four things we must guard against as a church that we see here in this text. Number one, we must guard against deceivers. He says, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. We begin to learn about the historical queen Jezebel in 1 Kings 16. Jezebel was a wicked, evil woman who was married to a weak man. King Ahab was spineless, without conviction, and his wife controlled the kingdom through him. She led him in 1631 of 1 Kings, we see she led him to worship pagan gods. In 1813, she led him to kill God's prophets. And in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, we see that she led him to the murder of a righteous man named Naboth simply for his vineyard. And there's a woman in this church in Thyatira who is leading the people astray through false teaching and through teaching them and convincing them to compromise with sin. Like Jezebel, she is good with her words. She's smart and cunning. She's the kind of person who's easy to follow because she's so good with her words. And the things that she says, they, they make sense and they resonate. However, she's evil, she's deceptive, she's domineering, and she's rebelling against true biblical authority. The woman in the church, her name is certainly not Jezebel. No, no parent would have done that, even to the worst kid. What Jesus is doing is he's referring to this woman. He's referencing the evil king, calling her that name, knowing that the church would be well aware with the evil Jezebel. He's making a point to the church, what they have kind of glossed over, and they've made it like it's really no big deal what she's doing. By calling her Jezebel, he's making it clear to them the weight of what she's doing. One can be incredibly talented, incredibly personable, but if they lead us away from the gospel, they must be fought against and even cast out of the body if necessary. The God, the God's word is, is clear about that, that all Christians have the opportunity for repentance, and we're going to see that she's had such. But for those who refuse to repent, for those who lead people astray, who refuse to conform to God's word, who lack humility to be able to take such steps, the church is to take bold and decisive action in accordance with Matthew 18. We must guard against deceivers. We must guard against rebelliousness. The Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. She makes herself an authority. She's a self-declared authority. And the thing is, a woman could certainly fill the role of a prophetess. Anna in Luke 2, verse 36, and Philip's daughter in Acts 21, 9, like we see women prophets who are, play a significant part in God's word. But this woman had not received this role from God. She had not been affirmed by leaders or tested by the body of Christ. Beware of any man or woman that claims spiritual authority, yet is reluctant to submit themselves to biblical church authority, because they're everywhere, okay? They're everywhere. Like, there's a reason. Right now, like, to, to be a pastor in our church, it's a, it takes a year to two years walking through a process. Not too long ago, we were blessed with, you know, Brandon and Amanda are gone today, but Brandon came, and man, I think, think God might be calling me to ministry. I want to flesh that out. 
okay, here's a two-year process where the church is going to observe you. You're going to lead in small things that will gradually get bigger, and we're going to test that. We're going to test what you know about God. You're going to submit a significant essay every month on what the text that we're walking through. Like, that's to be taken seriously. To be a, the church, what part of our role is to test those who are being called to leadership. And yet we, we live in a community where I feel like all the time I meet somebody who's starting some kind of church thing or they're involved in this thing and they're totally d- detached from the local church. And this is why that's serious. We must guard against rebelliousness and we must guard against poor theology. Number three, a good deceiver, a good deceiver will never teach solely heresy. They'll teach some truth but they'll subtly mix in that which is not of God. And it'll be subtle and it'll be appealing. They'll teach the finest philosophy. They will appeal to that which appeals to the flesh of man. Like the apple on the tree, they will offer that which is enticing. Yet we must always test truth fully against the word of God. Because if we don't, we will be deceived. We are prone to wander. Our flesh ebbs and flows. We can be changed from day to day, from week to week. That's why we pray the Psalms, because we resonate so closely closely with King David, who's like, "Ah, I love you, Lord, I want to die. And it's like three verses later, and that's all of our lives, like our flesh. Man, we're up, we're down, we're all over the place. We're prone to deception. God's word is our guide. It keeps us from being deceived by our own hearts above all else. It's for this reason that doctrine matters. Theology matters. Because we must always be on guard. Galatians 5.9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Compromising on a little bit of sin, a little bit of false teaching, it doesn't stop there. It goes and it goes and it spreads, and it's slow, and it's subtle, and it's sometime later before it's done its full harm. Number four, we have to guard against devaluing biblical morality. She convinced God's people to commit acts which went against his word. She convinced them to separate their spiritual life from their personal life. I believe this was one of the great deceptions of the church. These are separate things. Yeah, you, 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 you're going to be this kind of person when you're with the body, but this is your personal life. What happens in your basement? What happens with the guys? What happens separate over here? That, that's different. That's not attached to here. That's the great lie of the enemy. It's all connected. She convinced them to, to make this separation so that they could have their cake and they could eat it too. You can, you can follow Jesus, but you can also live according to the flesh and do what you want too. And the Bible says no such thing. She convinced them that it was okay to forsake their convictions sometimes. And she whispered in her ear the same way her father, the devil, did to Adam and Eve. There is no separation for us. The crude joke isn't okay in a separate place. The, 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 you know, getting that, that one night, well, I'm in, I'm in a safe place. It's okay to tip back a few too many. No, drunkenness is not okay in any place. Like there's never an exception for sin. Our life is to be fully and completely conformed to the image of God, whether we are with others or whether we're just in the presence of Him. Christ corrects the church, he corrects us with loving discipline. 
I want to read 21 through 25, one at a time. He says this, after he condemns the church for what she's done. Behold, I will throw her. No, no. I get, he says in verse 21, he shows his discipline is fair. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Note that God's discipline is fair. He gave her time. Every person has the opportunity to respond to God's word in repentance. To not do so is a willful choice of the flesh. Do not disregard your sin, Christian. Acknowledge it and repent of it now. God's given you that grace. He's given you that choice. Repent of that which is sin. And we see God's discipline is not only fair, but in verse 22, God's discipline is full. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. He says that for her, in light of her refusal to repent, she is facing death and hell. For those who follow her, tribulation is coming. The threat for them is not the same as they are for her. He distinguishes that. He's not referring to hell as he was with the false teacher. But as an act of grace, he is going to throw them into a tailspin, a severe discipline, I believe most likely in hopes that they would be restored. Here in these couple of verses, I think we're going to see the difference between those who are like Jezebel and are not believers and those who are believers but are being enticed. In verse 23, God's discipline is final. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches in mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. These words are hard to read. It's hard to know the exact meaning. It is possible. Perhaps he is referring to her literal grown children who have followed her lead. Perhaps the apple has not fallen far from the tree. However, I tend to hold it with a side. I believe it's more likely that this picture is that Christ is distinguishing between the Christians who are being deceived and those who, through trial and suffering, can be turned back. Okay, I think when Jesus talks about those committing adultery with her, there's, there's Christians who are believers. They belong to the Lord, but they've been tricked, they've been enticed, and they, they belong to Jesus, but they're committing adultery with this false teacher. Whether that's literal or whether that's symbolic of just giving in to her ways, doing the things that she has. And so for them, there's going to be this destruction that comes that's going to turn them back. She's going to death. She is heading towards a sickbed. For them, they're going to face destruction that will bring them back. But I think that when Jesus refers to the ch her children, he's referring to those who are just right there with her in the same boat as she is. They're not Christians. They're evil in the same vein as her. And for them, like her, the future is separation from Jesus. I want you to feel the weight of that for just a minute. Jezebel, in compromising with sin, she's leading others to do the same and thus leading them towards death and destruction like her. What a... What a weighty thing to acknowledge and remember as God's people. That when we compromise with sin, we also influence those. We, we, can, we can bring those with us along the way. Might we not ever be like Jezebel in such a way? Because God's wrath is to be feared. 
It also says in verse, you know, verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. All the churches will know. The Lord will make his truth known to those who are truly his. And what truth will he make known? I am the one who examines minds and hearts, giving to each accordingly. Jezebel fooled the church. She deceived the church, but they, she did not fool Christ. He sees not merely our outward acts, but our inward heart motivations. And his discipline is faithful. Verse 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. There are some who are holding to the truth. And for them, he encourages them, stand firm, stay the course. For they have a future. And I want to close this morning by reminding you and challenging you with that future. Because in verses 26 and 29, Christ challenges us with future promises. In verse 26 and 27, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. As God's people, the future includes us receiving the authority of Christ's power. And even now, as we speak in the name of Jesus, we have authority through his word, through his resurrection. I believe personally here in this text that Christ is making a reference to the millennial kingdom to come, the millennial reign that will one day be. However, no matter what end times view you hold, and that's going to be, I'm going to say that disclaimer like a thousand times throughout the remainder of this series, because I've, I have been convinced in my life that we live in that time now. I've been convinced in my life that the, that time is to come. That's a complicated matter. We'll talk more about next semester. But no matter what your view is, the point is clear. He reminds us that our future includes his church being with him as he reigns perfectly in the day to come. And in verse 28 through 29, we receive the assurance of Christ's presence. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says to the one who endures, to the people in the church who stay the course, who aren't led astray, who endure to the end, who hold fast to that which is true, I will give you the morning star. Spoiler alert, in the end of Revelation, in chapter 22, I believe it is, we learn Jesus reveals himself to be the morning star. For those of us who endure, we receive him fully. All we need is Jesus, and we will have him fully if we endure by his power and for his glory. As we conclude this morning, trying to keep in mind, got our kiddos in here. God is the same now and forevermore, and so is his gospel. The truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word that they were to hold to was the same for Thyatira as it was for us. And the reward was the same for them as it for, is for us, and that being Jesus himself. Neither the world nor those who compromise with the world 
can be allowed to lead us to lesser truths. No matter how, no matter how seductive those lesser truths might be in the moment, we have Jesus and we can forsake all else in light of him. For those who, of us who belong to Jesus, we have all we need in him. The world has nothing to offer that is not momentary and brittle and not, will not be broken like jars of clay when Jesus reigns in glory fully, when every man, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And this is not always easy for our hearts to believe. I was talking to a member in our body this week who was just confessing. Lately, it's been hard to believe such a thing. It's just in a season where belief is not as easy as it was. And I read to our team this morning in Psalms 119, uh, we see the psalmist says, like, my, my wine, my wine skin, it's, it's, like, it's like it's filled with smoke, but I hold to your precepts. And we sometimes as believers, our wineskin is bursting and it's bursting at the seams and we're joyous and we know that God is who he is and we're on the mountain. And sometimes our wineskin is so dry and brittle and blackened that it's almost like it was filled with smoke. And the psalmist says in that moment, what I have is to hold the promises of God. As believers, like if you're a believer and you've never doubted, <laughs> I mean, come on, you're lying to yourself. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. But things not seen. As people who have Jesus, we can endure and endure is enduring because it's not easy. Because there are going to be times of difficulty. There are going to be times where the biggest difficulty I face is my own heart and my own deceptions and the own lies that I'm prone to believe. But through God's word and the encouragement and leading that it provides, we endure. Because we know that if we endure, we will have him fully as he is. And that our reward is greater than anything the world has to offer. We have Jesus and thus we can forsake all else. Would you pray with me to that end this morning? Jesus, thank you for being a good and gracious king. Jesus, as I'm thinking about just the songs that we've sung today, the songs that we sing, you are a good and gracious king. And when we call on you, to help our unbelief, you're faithful to help. You're faithful to be gracious. God, it's a, it's a difficult thing to walk faithfully in this place. We know this full well. We feel this. The world offers so much that, that at times it, it, feels, it feels like everything. And in those moments, Lord, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Holy Spirit, I ask that, uh, that we might be a people who cling to your promises. Lord, the, the psalmist tells us that, that your mercy gives life. Lord, remind us of your mercy. God, you've been so gracious to us. You made a way for us. You've given us a hope and a future and a heritage. The world has nothing to offer in comparison to these things. 
Lord, don't, don't let us be deceived. Lord, don't let us be deceived. Would we cling to old, holy, new, beautiful things that your word has revealed to us? And would we turn from, would we reject, would we forsake lesser earthly things? God, in that way, might you use us to testify of who you are to the people in this community that you care about? Lord, like Thyatira, would we be a people who love you and serve you faithfully? But unlike Thyatira, would we love your truth? Would we love your truth so much that we boldly stand for it, that we will boldly stand against the adversary when they come and seek to teach something different. Lord, we need your grace in this way. We acknowledge our dependence in this pursuit, and we ask that you come and lead us each and every day. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.